X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Tuesday, March 16th. Today, back in the day in 1968, U.S. troops carried out the My Lai Massacre. After the Tet Offensive carried out by Viet Cong forces, U.S. intelligence assumed that combatants had retreated to a small village along Vietnam's eastern coast. U.S. troops were ordered to act aggressively with tactics such as burning houses, killing livestock, and poisoning wells. They were also told on the eve of the attack that all villagers would be at the market and that anyone still around would be VC or VC sympathizers. Estimates put the number of civilians killed somewhere between 347 and 504. It wasn't until July of 1969 that evidence of the atrocity reached the office of the Provost Marshal General of the Army, and 26 officers were charged with premeditated murder. Only Lieutenant William Calley Jr. was found guilty of murdering over 20 people and sentenced to life in prison. He ended up serving only three years on house arrest. When the massacre happened, U.S. media mostly did not act on tips describing the event until in October of 1969, when Seymour Hersh broke the story. The story sparked outrage at home and abroad and fueled American anti-war efforts. And today, back in the day in 1995, again 1995, Mississippi was the last state to ratify the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, which sought to end slavery, except as a form of punishment, was submitted to states for ratification on February 1st, 1865. 18 states ratified the amendment within that month, but other states whose membership of the union was up for debate took a bit longer. Over the next summer, new President Andrew Johnson sought to convince Southern states to ratify the new amendment so that their readmission to the Union would be easily secured. Many Southern states agreed to ratify under the condition that the amendment would not authorize the federal government to give additional civil rights, such as suffrage, to freed slaves. A number of states rejected the amendment but later voted to affirm in the next few years. Mississippi took over 100 years to finally ratify the amendment, although there was a complication. Even though the state voted on the amendment, they failed to notify the U.S. archivist, which made the vote unofficial. It was only in 2013 that the vote was sent to the Office of the Federal Register. And today, back in the day in 1973, the Fremont Bridge span was lifted into place. Construction on the Portland Bridge started in the late 60s and was completed in November of 1973. The most exciting part of construction happened on this day in 1973 when the central span was lifted into place. It was the biggest bridge lift in U.S. history at the time, with the center span weighing in at 6,000 tons. The Fremont Bridge is the second largest tide arch bridge in the world, the first being the Kayomba Bridge in China. For today's episode, we'll start with your quick six local headlines, and we have an interview with Joanne Zhul, executive editor from Street Roots. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Portland Public Schools negotiated a reopening plan with the City Teachers Union. 
Under the agreement, Portland's kindergartners and first graders will return to class on April 1st. Second through fifth graders will join on April 5th. Middle and high schoolers are set to resume in-person learning on April 19th, per orders from the governor. In-person learning will take place four days a week in either morning or afternoon sessions. One of the primary requests from the teachers' union was five extra days after spring break to prepare for the students' return. That pushed back the reopening by one week. But it also gives teachers more time to adapt after a year when they were required to change their lesson plans at just a moment's notice. The teachers' union also requested funding to hire more full-time custodians to ensure safe and sanitary conditions in the classroom. Union negotiations aren't finished yet. The deal still needs to be approved by union members and then by the Portland School Board. Final details and approval of the plan are expected by the middle of this week. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 178 new coronavirus cases. It's the lowest number of daily cases in a month. The state also reported two new deaths. Since the pandemic began last March, there have been a total of 159,788 COVID cases. There have been a total number of 2,324 deaths. One year ago, Oregon experienced a wave of unemployment and requests for benefits. Over 661,000 Oregonians have filed for unemployment since last March. The unemployment rate peaked last April with 13% of Oregonians out of a job. By now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that the unemployment rate has fallen to 6.2%, still slightly higher than normal. For instance, in March 2019, the Oregon unemployment rate sat at around 4%. But the current numbers are encouraging and suggest that, as vaccinations increase, more Oregonians are getting back to work. A Portland-based reissue label won a Grammy Sunday night. Omnivore Records won Best Historical Album for the compilation It's Such a Good Feeling, the Best of Mr. Rogers. The record label reissues historic and vintage recordings from a wide variety of genres. This marks the second Grammy for Omnivore's owner, Cheryl Pavelski. In 2014, she also won Best Historical Album for producing Hank Williams' The Garden Spot Programs, 1950. She's also received nominations for a box set compilation of 1950s proto-punk and rockabilly, as well as a compilation of underground rock from Los Angeles in the late 1960s. Cheryl Pavelski accepted the award from her Southeast Portland home alongside her wife, President of Reed College, Audrey Bilger. So what's next for Omnivore Records? Its newest release will be the earliest known recording of Allen Ginsberg reading his iconic poem, Howl, right here in Portland at Reed College in 1956. On Friday, Mayor Wheeler delivered his yearly State of the City address. In addition to Wheeler's speech, the event included discussions between business leaders, consultants, and community organizers. The major theme of the night was recovery with a pro-business agenda. Wheeler focused on four major issues, houselessness, increasing gun violence, continued protests, and disrepair downtown. He announced a citywide cleanup project called Clean and Green, which will be spearheaded by former mayor Sam Adams. 
Wheeler also expressed support for affordable housing and alternative housing projects like tiny home villages. Wheeler reminded viewers of the city's decision to mildly reduce the police budget last summer. However, he announced that this year he intends to expand and bolster the police bureau. Mayor Wheeler has already requested $2 million in additional funding for targeted policing around gun violence. He indicated that part of that expansion will be a crackdown on the protesters who continue to demonstrate against racial inequities and policing. The event was broadcast online by the City Club of Portland. X-Ray FM was a media sponsor of the event. Just days after it came down, the courthouse fence is going back up. The metal barricade around the Mark Hatfield Courthouse was installed last summer when the building became a hub for nightly protests. Over the past year, the Department of Justice has spent more than $1.5 million repairing the Justice Center. Funnily enough, the fence itself cost over $200,000. On March 8th, federal officials decided it was time to tear down the fence. The building was almost immediately vandalized. Protesters smashed windows, tagged to the outside walls, and started a small fire outside the building. Protesters aren't the only opponents of the fence, however. The Department of Homeland Security has racked up millions in fines from Portland's bureaus of transportation and environmental services. Whether the federal government will ever actually pay those fines? Not likely. And finally, some good news. It's Blazers night. In tonight's hometown game, the Trailblazers are facing off against the New Orleans Pelicans. Tonight, the odds are on the Blazers' side. Currently, they're tied for fifth in the Western Conference with 22 wins and 16 losses. The Pelicans are trailing. They rank 12th in the Western Conference and have 17 wins compared to 22 losses. The two teams will match up for the second time this season. On February 17th, the Blazers eked out a win by just two points. Damian Lillard is having a great season. He ranks second in the NBA for points scored per game. The bottom line, it's going to be an exciting game to tune in tonight at 6 p.m. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we have the executive editor of Street Roots, Joanne Zuhl. Ambush and Morgan talk with Joanne about recent coverage on the lasting effects of trauma on inmates, as well as other stories in the recent edition of Street Roots. Here are Joanne, Ambush, and Morgan. A note to listeners, we will be speaking sometimes graphically about violent acts as we are joined with Joanne Zuhl, Executive Director of Street Roots. Hi, Joanne. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You're here with uh, Morgan Jones and Ambush. Um, thank you for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. This Yay. piece on trauma in prison is tied to the launch of a new Street Roots podcast. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Right. Well, we are we have launched, um, it just came out this weekend, a new podcast, and that features our managing editor, Emily Green, who has uh, been covering criminal justice issues for quite a while now. And she has partnered up with Joshua Wright, uh, who has a podcast called The Exiled Voice. And Joshua's specialty um, is working with and talking with and bringing the stories of people who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. He himself has experienced incarceration, and so that's uh, you know a passion of his to bring those voices forward. So in this partnership, we're going to be presenting, uh, the, the podcast is called Walled In, 
and it will be available on our website. And uh, it's going to come out probably about four times a year right now, and it'll be featuring both uh, the work of Joshua to talk with people who are or have been imprisoned, and then Emily doing interviews with uh, experts on particular issues. And uh, the inaugural podcast, which, like I said, is, is out now, is an interview with Megan Novinsky, Novisky, excuse me, and she uh, is a she teaches criminology at Cleveland State University, and uh, Novisky, along with Robert Peralta, and he is a criminology professor at the University of Akron, Ohio. They have co-authored a study that examines the lasting effects that witnessing violence has on former state prisoners in Ohio, and they spoke with thirty former prisoners, and all of them had either directly experienced violence or had witnessed it at some point during their incarceration. Uh, this study just came out last year. It's titled Gladiator School, Returning Citizens' Experiences with Secondary Violence Exposure in Prison. Uh, it's a lengthy a lengthy title, but it, it really uh, is important information to better understand that uh, so much goes on behind bars that it's far beyond the intended sentences that are put upon people. Yes. Uh, I was reading the article by Emily in Street Root, and mm-hmm. my goodness, uh, that that idea that, I, I don't even like to say it this way, that like simply witnessing violence um, and violent acts is traumatizing, because um, I don't think there's anything simple about that. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what kind of effects do these traumas have on incarcerated people? Well, I think uh, what you know, with what society knows about what witnessing violence can do, it, you just think of that compounded behind bars because of the prevalence of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the researchers Novisky and Peralta really found that there was an incredible amount of emotional and psychological strain put on uh, the people who are incarcerated. I mean, these are these are really um, disturbing stories of just day to day life. And again, this is not. This was not part of their sentence. This is trauma that is just simply the environment of prison these days. Uh, prisoners talked about seeing common, simple objects weaponized. Um, mm. So, like padlocks, um, just items uh, around them in daily life that you would also see outside of prison, but now uh, have this trauma attached to them. People spoke of being stabbed, stabbed of uh, broken bones, uh, being sex trafficked while in prison. Mm. Uh, just even if they, if an individual wasn't directly involved in it, just witnessing um, the violence, the blood, uh, having to clean up um, the evidence of a, of a situation of violence, to clean up the blood, uh, is is just incredibly trying. You can't even imagine what that uh, would be like, and not just it, perhaps in an isolated case, but if you are in prison for decades, uh, how much mm. of that you would see. So true. I mean, the, it really, for me, was an eye-opening thing of, uh, and and like you just said, the this isn't a part of the sentence. This isn't a part of your rehabilitation. Right. This isn't exactly. uh, supposed to be even a part of your punishment, right? Um, so, and that's that's one of the things that Novisky really points out that you know she says that in no other context would it be acceptable for people to be violently victimized or exposed to these kinds of violent circumstances, but we allow it to happen in prison. And, you know, her argument is certainly that, you know, being convicted of a crime should not mean 
that society has a free pass to traumatize someone, mm. you know, week after week, day after day. And, you know, I think the implications that she's, she's pointing out in this interview is that, you know, we, we have expectations of what, you know, a sentence is supposed to do. It's punitive, and it's, you know, we, we hope that a person emerges from prison if they are to emerge from prison, you know, uh, rejecting criminal life and perhaps seeing how they can become a, a productive member of, uh, of the community, but that these kind of traumas actually foster more criminal behavior. Um, so it's pretty fascinating how we're, we perhaps are causing more problems than, than this so-called solution of incarceration was intended to address. This is making me think about um, the result of incarceration, much like the result of being uh, a soldier in mm. a war-torn area. Yeah. I'm, you know, the the idea that we um, our expectation is that you just come back and integrate, and you, you know, right. become a productive member of society in whatever mm-hmm. form that takes. But it's productive, and and like you said, you will reject the criminality now. And in fact, it's um, you are likely learning many more uh, criminal, uh, not ways, but, you know, um, and then the violence on top of it. And that's so much trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I understand why it's important to emphasize those witnessing violence. Um, mm-hmm. But can you give us something, uh, just give us the importance of when we're thinking about it in the carceral system? Well, you know, as as I was saying, I think you have to um, you have to pause and recognize if this is what our carceral system does. If our carceral system is not just what you know a a, 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 a rudimentary understanding of it that it okay, it's a place where bad people go. It's a place to remove them from society. It's mm-hmm. a place to maybe hopefully re- rehabilitate people. Keep you know. Public safety is job number one, supposedly, right? But if we, the more we understand about, about what this carceral system does and the impacts it has, not just on the people who are behind the bars, but mm. the community at large, uh, co- communities, uh, particularly communities of color and how things are disproportionately uh, meted out and, and how, the, how much damage is caused by this, right? thinking about how much this trauma, what this does to people and human beings that we expect to be recovered by prison or right. uh, rehabilitated by prison, if we understand, in fact, that's that's actually not happening and we're causing, again, more problems uh, and more damages than what we think um, we're doing to solve the problem of public safety, then we have to rethink how we're doing prisons, right? We have to think about um, lengths of sentences, uh, who is uh, receiving sentences, how incarceration is applied, whether incarceration at all is a solution. Right. So a lot of those considerations go into, you know, or or, are drawn out of studies like these that, you know, this is not the first study to show problems of our carceral system, right? We know that there are myriad problems with it, and, you know, are, are all those problems worth it for what we think we're getting out of it? Right, right. For anyone just tuning in, this is Morgan in Ambush. We are speaking with Joanne Zool of Street Roots. 
Joanne, that just made me think of, are there any studies uh, on violence and the effects of witnessing violence uh, with the correctional officers? Um, I have to say, I can't, I can't say off the top of my head. I would imagine that there are, um, and I, I would imagine that there might be even more for the officers than there are for the actual mm. uh, prisoners, to be honest with you, just uh, understanding biases over the decades. But, Certainly. Uh, you know, I, I think violence is violence, right? And that happens, that's whether you are someone walking down the street and you see a, a terrible violent action, um, or if you see it behind bars. And, you know, one, however, is, state-sanctioned um, in a sense, right. and the other one is just incidental. So, you know, where does the responsibility lie? Oh, that, yeah, that is, uh, you're going to put me down a rabbit hole today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get out of here, um, can you tell us about any restorative justice programs that work to break this cycle of violence? I don't have a list in front of me, to be honest with you. There are uh, organizations that you can seek out if you feel like you're not, if you have someone who is behind bars um, that you want to, that you want that address. Mm. Um, I, I can't, I, I don't know names at the top of my head, but um, there are organizations out there. Um, but there are programs that people uh, can find. There are. There are not many, and I'm sure they're busy, but um, <laughs> I, but I, it's worth it. I mean, the, the point, the larger point is that if you do feel like there is there are problems, register that. You know, the complaint system behind in the criminal justice system or in the incarceral system um, can be, you know, challenging, yeah. to say the least. So if you have people on the outside who can uh, pursue avenues, um, by all means. Before we go, can you tease some of the other stories in the paper? Sure. Our cover story is uh, is really interesting. Of course, a lot of people are going to be thinking about going back to work as uh, as the light at the end of the tunnel starts to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have a report about how uh, businesses, employers in this in Portland, have incentivized non car forms of transportation and commuting. Uh, forming transportation demand management teams that, um, you know, incentivize either bikes or public transit or uh, lifts in case of emergency, carpool arrangements, uh, bike valets, um, subsidized transit, you know, pay um, mm-hmm. tickets. It's pretty interesting. OHSU is one of the leaders on this. Uh, the Port of Portland, uh, Nike, Adidas, uh, Portland Medical Center have all really been focused on how they can encourage their employees um, to come to work without driving. So it's a pretty interesting report on this. And we offer Chris May, the author of the story, offers uh, tips and suggestions for talking to your own employer about incentivizing alternative ways to commute. Nice. We also have a conversation with Winsley Campos, who last month became the youngest female legislator in Oregon history. She represents the House District 28 in Aloha. She's also one of the few legislators of color and has uh, a career working with people experiencing homelessness. So a lot of people are looking to her to see her uh, impact on the legislator this session. Very exciting. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like a great addition. It is. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joanne. Thank you. Happy to be here.
We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Joanne for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Also, thanks for subscribing, letting your friends know about us, and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.